Welcome to Earth Matters, stories of environmental and social justice, produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hi, I'm Helen Gulliam. In the past few weeks on Earth Matters, we've been hearing about different ways to communicate around climate change, through the visual arts, through climate fiction, and through psychology and the social sciences. This week, we'll hear from Tony Birch, a creative writer and teacher who's been working with young people in Footscray, Melbourne, to help them express and explore their environment. Tony is also exploring his own and others' Indigenous history and philosophy to understand First Nations communities' resilience to environmental and social change and how that might encourage the broader community to respond and adapt. But first, an update on the Abbott government's continuing attack on environmental defenders' offices around Australia. In 2013, the federal government announced massive funding cuts to community legal and advocacy services nationally, including family violence prevention centres, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal services, and all environment defenders' offices across Australia. In late March 2013, the federal Attorney-General, George Brandis, announced some funding would be restored to the community legal sector, but this did not include the Environment Defenders' Offices. I spoke to Jess Feely, Principal Solicitor at EDO Tasmania, about the impact of the federal government's attack on legal advocacy for the environment. Hi Jess, thanks for speaking to Earth Matters today. Can you start by reminding us, what is it that Environmental Defenders' Offices do? So the Environmental Defenders' Offices are a network of community legal centres across Australia, and we provide uh, advice, Uh, community legal education, assistance with um, advocacy on law reform and representation in court cases in relation to environmental and planning law issues. So in late 2013, the Commonwealth Attorney-General's Department announced the Environment Defenders' Offices across Australia, their funding was going to be cut, along with much of the community legal sector. But the cuts to EDOs came in immediately, didn't they? That's right. So we were advised on the 17th of December 2013 without any prior warning. It wasn't an election commitment or anything that had been flagged to us as a possibility that our funding would be cut. The bulk of those cuts took effect immediately and the balance of a small amount continued till the 30th of June. But as of the 1st of July of 2014, we have not received any Commonwealth funding. So what's been the effect of those funding cuts in Tasmania where you are and nationally for Environment Defenders? Well, since 1996, when the Commonwealth Government uh, funding commenced, a lot of the small offices, and, and EDO Tasmania is certainly one of those, has been quite reliant on that funding to continue our services. So the loss of those funds has put our service at risk, and certainly a lot of the other smaller EDOs are in a similar position. We've had to uh, reduce services and obviously spend quite a bit of time that would otherwise have been spent on delivering services on trying to secure alternative sources of funding. So just paint a bit of a picture of us. So what are the sort of work that you're involved with in in Tasmania? What are the kind of advocacy services to the environment that you're involved in at the moment? Well, we do a range of things. So certainly in the last year, we've produced a mining law handbook. Unconventional gas is increasingly an issue that the community is concerned about down here. So we produced um, a detailed 
resource around what the laws say, what opportunities the community has to, to comment and to um, object to any developments in their area and then delivered a series of workshops in regional areas targeted mainly at concerned rural landholders to help them understand what their rights were. We've represented a number of um, individuals and organisations concerned about environmental law issues including the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre in seeking an injunction to prevent four-wheel drives being allowed into sensitive cultural heritage areas on the west coast of Tasmania. We've represented uh, the Tarkine National Coalition in a challenge to permit conditions for a mine in the Tarkine and a range of, of just individuals who are concerned about proposed developments in their area, helping them to understand what their options are to either oppose the development or to make sure that it's subject to conditions which address their concerns. So there's plenty of work to be done. In late 2014, the Productivity Commission released a report into access to justice arrangements in Australia. What did it recommend about funding of community legal services like yours? The Productivity Commission access to justice arrangements was specifically looking at the Commonwealth contribution to community legal services and the where that was best spent, the efficiencies that were delivered as a result of funding those services. And certainly the conclusions were that it was an entirely appropriate and indeed very important use of Commonwealth funding, um, that advocacy, that community legal education were important preventative tools to make sure that things didn't actually end up in courts, that people were aware of what their rights and responsibilities were in advance of things becoming an issue. And in relation to environmental defenders' offices, they did recognise the value of community legal services for environmental and planning law issues and recommended a return of funding to, to EDOs. So now the federal government has done a bit of a half backflip and restored some funding to the community legal sector, but not to environment defenders' offices. Was any reason given for this? Uh, yes, yeah, so it was a very it was very disappointing for the environmental defenders' offices to be excluded from that decision. Though we are very pleased with the, the backflip in relation to community legal sector generally, the reason that was given was essentially that the government sees a distinction between advocacy and frontline services and that's certainly a distinction that the EDOs think is completely false. Uh, the work that we do is in fact frontline assistance to individuals concerned about issues which affect them, which affect their health personally and the health of the environment in which they live and the advocacy around law reform is designed entirely to address issues that we have identified because people continue to come to us with concerns about those issues. What, what do you think is going on? Is this entirely politically motivated, do you think? Or is there a real misunderstanding about the work that Environment Defenders offices do? Certainly the decision that was made to cut the EDO's funding in, in 2013 came very soon after the Federal Attorney-General was lobbied by the Minerals Council in relation to funding to Environmental Defenders Offices specifically. Um, environmental Defenders Offices around the country are involved in challenging a number of significant resource decisions. So Environment Defenders Office Queensland is involved in challenging the Carmichael um, mine. Um, EDO New South Wales has obviously been actively involved in a number of uh, mining challenges there and equally in WA and, and the Northern Territory. So there, there is a perception that industry opposes the idea that environmental defenders' offices would be challenging the decisions that they are wanting to be to be made. So that's certainly a concern that we have, that that's what's driving this decision. So how does the EDO network see its, its future and, and its ability to continue its work? Do you think there's any hope that funding will be restored at some other levels of government? Certainly the decision that was, or the announcement that was made last week means that we, do, we have little confidence that the current federal government will resume any funding of the EDOs. As a network, we are 
working together to make sure that services can continue to be provided across the country. The smaller offices are particularly vulnerable and in the absence of either increased state funding or securing alternative philanthropic funding, there is the risk of those small offices closing in the near future. What can people do practically to support or assist the Environment Defenders Offices Network? Well, certainly donations are one way that people can help. So there's each of the offices is open for, for donations from the public. But more importantly, letting the government know at the state level and at the federal level that it is a service that they value, that they do see that protection for the environment is something that should be funded by government, that it is important that legal advice is available to people who do want to understand what's going on in their community, what they can do about it and how they can possibly prevent or make sure that conditions are imposed to moderate the impact of developments which they're concerned will impact the environment. Jess Feely, Principal Solicitor at Environment Defenders Office, Tasmania. And you can find links to all EDO offices around Australia at edo.org.au. Recently, Earth Matters has been looking at different ways of engaging the community in discussion of the environment and climate change. This week we're meeting Tony Birch, a Koori writer who's been teaching history and creative writing in Melbourne for many years. Last year, Tony became one of the writers-in-residence in the Weather Stations Project, a global project that places literature and storytelling at the heart of conversations around climate change. Through this project, Tony has embarked on a new journey to examine the ways in which Indigenous experience worldwide could perhaps help us all be more resilient to environmental and social change. I started by asking Tony to describe his role in the Weather Stations Project. It's a global project, um... I'm associated with the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne, um, but it's actually an EU project. So there are four so-called weather substations across Europe, um, one in Berlin, one in Dublin, one in London, and a city um, called Hell on the Baltic Sea in Poland. And those substations are associated with either writing centres or environmental centres. And the work that I do is twofold. One, that I've worked with 15-year-old kids in each of those cities so that I'm working in Melbourne with kids at Footscray City College in the western suburbs, but I've also been to Europe and worked with kids at high school level in four schools in Europe, um, getting them to think about climate change, but also how they can write about climate change from their perspective. And the other aspect of it is really just having a personal access to the site where I can post anything I want. So I've done that in the form of longer essays, political commentary, poetry, visual essays, anything that's come to mind. So um, for me, it's been also educational in the sense I've done a lot more work and reading in the area so that it's probably shifted the way that I would um, give future attention to the issue. You're very experienced and well-known as a creative writer in Melbourne. Were you across climate change science before this? Well, I certainly wouldn't be across the science except to say that I accept the science. Teaching at Melbourne University and having a really strong interest in place writing and, and, and history and particularly Indigenous history, I certainly was um, aware of some of the issues and the politics I think I was quite well aware of. As a writer, trying to get people to think about how you write about your own locality is something that I'd always done. But I suppose what has changed is that, I suppose that dilemma as a writer and trying to communicate ideas around and climate change and what to do about it and how to educate people, that's been an ongoing and developing conversation. 
but I would have to say that intellectually um, there's been a dramatic shift in my thinking about what I want to do around climate change. So um, I've been teaching at Melbourne University for about 15 years and teaching history and teaching creative writing, but um, I'm actually about to embark on a five-year project at Victoria University with the Indigenous unit there, Mundani Balok, and that is to look at climate change, to look at the politics and history of it, but in this case to look at um, Indigenous knowledge systems and what past and present weather events, how they've impacted on Indigenous peoples can possibly give philosophical and um, political guidance to people who are interested in the issue. So I suppose what I'll do now is I'll still write about the issue creatively, but it'll give me a much stronger focus to develop my own thinking intellectually and to get out there and and try and involve myself in conversations with people. What have you found yourself writing in this project? Has it been what you expected in the other kind of blogs and essays Uh, that you've written? I mean, not really, because I'm not a blogger, like diary blogger. I've had a stronger attachment to Tony Abbott than I thought I might have, so that um, I've written several pieces on on Abbott's um, lack of um, engagement with the issue, and some of those have been possibly comical and others quite serious politically. At a more, I suppose, intellectual level, I'm interested in the way that um, the West thinks of climate change as a future event and a future catastrophic event, and my sense is there's a strange sort of almost a romance to that because if you look at the way that environment and ecology has impacted on Indigenous communities, say, since you have processes of colonisation, all the aspects of climate change that a lot of Western humanities um, scholars talk about as, you know, the the, you know, the real threat, obviously, of, of, of changing our environment dramatically for the negative, um, po- problems with food, problems with population, um, problems with people's, you know, your daily life and the impact on that. All those processes have impacted on Aboriginal people in Australia since the arrival of the British. And um, even though it's not the same cause, so it's not something coming out of what is called the Anthropocene of a sort of a general shift in how we engage with the planet as a sort of global community. But in fact, you could say, well, if you look at the way that Indigenous communities have been impacted on and how Indigenous communities have confronted those dramatic impacts on their, their communities, I think there is something for the wider community to, to learn and to, and to understand. And so that it's almost as if there's this sort of naivety or purity in, in Western civilization that you know, we are about to be affected by climate change and we have never been infected, affected sorry, in this way before, but of course many communities have. And I think we should look to those circumstances more to see how people respond in those situations. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. I'm Helen Gulliam, and I'm speaking with Tony Birch, a Melbourne-based academic and creative writer. Tony has recently taken part in the Global Weather Stations project, writing and mentoring others to write about their local environment. But the project has also encouraged Tony to delve more into the way in which Indigenous communities around the world are responding to the challenges of climate change. One of the things I've been pleasantly surprised about, I, I, I understand or I've got sense of what is happening in parts of Victoria around the issue of climate change and, and Koori communities, but I've been really pleased, in fact, to find that there are um, you know, very strong global networks in the US, the um, Indian environmental movement, there are um, in Alaska, in parts of Europe, um, certainly on the African continent, there are in fact wide networks of indigenous activists, scholars, educators, environmentalists, ecologists, who are actually not only um, writing, talking, 
protesting about the impact of climate on their communities. But the other side of it is that not only is there a lack of understanding or a lack of urgency about what will happen to Indigenous communities you know, very soon and, and other very poor communities around the world. You know, there's some remarkable work done in the US, which people probably aren't aware of, of the impact of climate change on poor people generally. So talking about you know, African-American communities, poorer white communities and immigrant communities. So, But the other aspect around Indigenous um, communities that, that really needs to get more attention is, in fact, the knowledge held in Indigenous communities about the way the climate impacts on land impacts on culture because Indigenous communities have gone through these processes historically, have great knowledge um, storage because of it, and that knowledge can be very helpful to the wider community. Now, again, pleasantly, I've, I've just, just discovered that there are um, some non-Aboriginal scholars and activists working very closely with Indigenous communities, and, and that's fantastic. But in a sense, that information, that knowledge, not only does it have to get out to a wider readership, the Indigenous people who hold that knowledge need to be given greater attention and, and I think really given greater respect for the knowledge they hold and have a more active role if they seek that. So there's a lot of a lot of work to be done there that could be beneficial to, to everyone. So one of the one of my interests and you know, it's sort of to be honest, it's what's half-formed at the moment. It's just an idea, is to think about a, an Indigenous philosophy and how an Indigenous philosophy around climate change could, in fact, be a, a, a better way of thinking and dealing with climate change for, for a wider community. Because one of the things that I've found and the writers who are working on this project have found is we want to find a way to talk to people who are otherwise disengaged and we want those people to engage in a way that is affirmative rather than talk about climate and just get people to switch off. And it's very hard to do that because you can't... I don't think you can um, soften the blow in the sense of you know, not tell people the seriousness of the issue. I think you've got to be open about that. But you've got to be able to do it in a way that people will respond to rather than put their head in the sand and, and ignore the issue. Yes, I was reading one of your um, pieces and you talked about the way in which climate writing and and climate fiction particularly can become this kind of disaster narrative ready for movies and that it really encourages some kind of complacency that it's it's all just a movie and Hollywood will save the day. Is is that something that concerns you a lot? Well, it it concerns me greatly because I think that people think, well, um, it will be fixed. Someone will put up some giant shield or, you know, a superhero will come and arrive. He'll, be, he'll happen to be an engineer, or she will be an engineer this time. So, yeah, I do think that that's the case, that people think something will come about that will save us. And my view is that that in itself is a problem, saying, well, we don't need to be saved. What we need to do is to enact changes in our lives, enact changes in policy and legislation that are actually positive changes. You mentioned working with the younger people in Footscray. What have they been doing as part of this project? Oh, look, they've been fantastic. They're year nine, 14 and 15 year olds. It's a, it's a multi-level or multi-layered project. I am basically have been there as the writer to do writing workshops with them. They're also working with an organisation called Tipping Point. And with Tipping Point, they've been doing some remarkable stuff. They've been making mini documentaries. They've been doing some chalking protests themselves around the city. So a few weeks ago, they went into the CBD. They had to... Um, 
create their own messages or slogans and then chalk them on public spaces that people then would look at. And on, with that, they then did interviews with people to ask them how they felt about the messages that they put up on the wall. Um, and they've been so enthusiastic. And, and again, one of the things I was saying to, to someone this morning was that you know we often, as older people, and I, I'm talking about myself here, maybe maybe not your... I'm in that stage now where I'm moving out of doing one thing into the other and I'm looking at a desk across right now across from where we're talking and it's stacked with books, it's stacked with articles that I'm eager to get stuck into and um, one of the things that I've been, look, one of the things I've been pleasantly surprised about, I, I, I understand or I've got sense of what is happening in parts of Victoria around the issue of climate change and, and Koori communities, but I've been really pleased, in fact, to find that there are... Um, you know, very strong global networks in the US, the um, Indian environmental movement. There are um, in Alaska, in parts of Europe, um, certainly on the African continent. There are, in fact, wide networks of indigenous activists, scholars, educators, environmentalists, ecologists, who are actually not only um, writing, talking, protesting about the impact of climate on their communities, but the other side of it is that not only is there a lack of understanding or a lack of urgency about what will happen to indigenous communities you know, very soon and, and other very poor communities around the world. You know, there's some remarkable work done in the US which people probably aren't aware of of the impact of climate change on poor people generally. So talking about yeah, African American communities, poorer white communities and immigrant communities. So but the other aspect around indigenous um, communities that, that really needs to get more attention is, in fact, the knowledge held in indigenous communities about the way the climate impacts on land, impacts on culture, because indigenous communities have gone through these processes historically, have great knowledge um, storage because of it, and that knowledge can be very helpful to the wider community. Now, again, pleasantly, I've, I've just... Discovered that there are um, some non-Aboriginal scholars and activists working very closely with Indigenous communities, and, and that's fantastic. But in a sense, that information, that knowledge, not only does it have to get out to a wider readership, the Indigenous people who hold that knowledge need to be given greater attention, and and I think really given greater respect for the knowledge they hold, and have a more active role if they seek that. So there's a lot of a lot of work to be done there that could be beneficial to to everyone. So one of the one of my interests, and you know, it's sort of to be honest, it's what's half formed at the moment. It's just an idea, is to think about a, an indigenous philosophy and how an indigenous philosophy around climate change could, in fact, be a a, a better way of thinking and dealing with climate change for for a wider community. Where can people? Follow your work, Tony, and, and what's happening next with the Weather Stations project? Um, if people go to the Global Weather Stations site, it's a very user-friendly site. It has all of the entries from around the world. You can either tap into locations, tap into writers, um, tap into certainly some of the work of the school students, which is fantastic. That's going until September. So just to let you know, there will be a youth summit held at in Melbourne for the students at Footscray, which will probably be at the Wheeler Centre or certainly under the auspices of the Wheeler Centre. But there is a gathering in Berlin at the Berlin Writers' Festival, Literature Festival in September, where we will be bringing 
um, students from the five substations together to hold a four-day youth summit on climate change for schools in Berlin, which will be attached to the literature festival. So where people can get access to what I'm doing, well, I suppose it's it's lovely to say just watch this space because obviously when I, I get into the other job, I'll be doing as much published work and, and presenting the work as, wherever I can. And that will be a mix of creative work, so-called academic work, but also, as I've always done, community work. So I, I like to make sure I involve myself as a, with as wide a range of people as I can. So I, anything I do, I try to make sure that there's information out there. So and I've recently become, fortunately or not, a, a Facebook person. So anything that I'll do, I'll, I'll be putting on Facebook. And I'm very fortunate to be friends with uh, Mr. Gary Foley, who has about 5,000 followers. So anything I do, he tends to get out there. Tony Birch. You can find out more about the project at Global Weather Stations, that's all one word, globalweatherstations.com. You can also find some of his fictional writing at Queensland University Press. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with me, Helen Gwilliam. Today's podcast and others like it can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support and the Community Radio Network for distributing this show around Australia. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria. Our phone number is 03 9419 8377 and our email is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Earth Matters will be back next week with more environment and social justice news. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, Earth Matters is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.